White Ribbon Day in Australia, University of Sydney moves into China, and teaching teachers of children with autism. Hello and welcome to episode 18 of Talking Eds, APN Educational Media's weekly review podcast, comprising the team behind Early Learning Review, Education Review, and Campus Review. I'm Patrick Avenal, and I'm the news editor of these sites. We were in a little bit of shock the last two weeks following all of our collective's inability to pick Donald Trump overcoming Hillary Clinton to become the next president. So that's why we've been missing the last two weeks. But we're back now. Lauren's joining me. Great to see you, Lauren. Hey, Patrick. Happy despite the Trump presidency. Yes, it's it's been a tough two weeks. We've all been in therapy, but... Uh, Collectively, except for you know small pockets of Australia, everyone seemed to just assume that Hillary would win. Ross Cameron may be the only person who didn't uh, see this coming. James, how are you? Yeah, I'm good. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. James is the editor of Education Review and Campus Review. So, Lauren, we'll start with you. Today's White Ribbon Day. Uh, and this movement has become something of a social phenomenon, embraced by business leaders and politicians. But at the same time, it has started to attract some criticism from some commentators. What's the story? The story is, Patrick, um, this actually began as a male-led movement and it's specifically for female victims of male-perpetrated domestic violence. And although it seems like a really great initiative and it's true that women are overwhelmingly the victims of serious domestic violence, there are some criticisms and I'll read out a few pertinent ones that I found. One was from Nina Fennell. She's an outspoken feminist and social activist. And her message was that the movement has sort of divorced itself from action against domestic violence. So it has this great message and all the right people say all the right things. But in terms of actually raising money for organisations that need financial support, such as women's shelters, there's not much of a crossover between the day and those initiatives. Um, another criticism came from Bettina Arndt, who writes a column for The Australian, and her argument is that it neglects the actual causes of domestic violence. And by sort of blaming it on men collectively, it's ignoring some of the fundamental causes, which are alcohol, poverty, and drug addiction so sort of mixed feelings towards this day from me personally a lot of the criticism that i've read and i have read similar uh, stinging criticism has been that it's more about men patting themselves on the back for doing essentially nothing than it is about actually stopping domestic violence either the root causes or at the at the end of the spectrum finding a shelter for a person, a woman to go to if she is the victim of uh, family abuse. And, and that's, the, that's the criticism is that, is that you cannot draw a line between donating money and attending a white ribbon event and actually stopping domestic violence because the, the line just breaks down because the money is spent on marketing, it's spent on ribbons, it's spent on, you know, functions. So The mm. question is, is awareness in itself useful to the anti-domestic violence cause. I always find it ironic when you get someone like Tony Abbott um, supporting White Ribbon Day when he cuts funding to the women's shelters. Well, well that's something I read was this remarkable funding cuts have been ha- have been sort of swinging cuts have been have been besetting the these shelters. I read one piece today it was quite interesting it was by Anne Summers it was in the I think it was in the Fairfax media saying that when two young boys died going out in King's Cross we've shut down Sydney nightlife in response to that. 
and that has probably saved lives. But you know, every week a woman is the victim of partner violence and he is essentially murdered by their, their partner or their ex-partner. And yet we've essentially done nothing to stop that. And, that, and Anne Summers' point was that it's stuff like White Ribbon Day, well, may, maybe it makes us feel good, that it feels as though we're doing something, but doesn't actually achieve anything. It's always been a touchy subject because it has traditionally been, con been considered a private matter and only now is it becoming of public concern. So I think as a society, we're not yet at that point where we're willing to more fully intervene in these sort of cases. It's been all over my feeds today uh, on Twitter and on Facebook is, is friends of mine attending White Ribbon Day events and ceremonies and, you know, posting uh, memes or, you know, uh, truisms about, about partner violence. And one, one of the thing one of the comments that I read from, uh, was in the News Limited uh, website, so unfortunately I can't remember the name of the, the journalist, was that instead of instead of just you know donating money or wearing a white ribbon what would be really great is if men actually challenged other men about what they're actually doing mm. and saying good on you for going to the white ribbon event that's fine but have you ever actually donated twenty dollars to a frontline shelter mm. have you ever donated have you ever actually volunteered your time to answer phones and do counseling services you know have you ever challenged their point of view when they make jokes about, uh, you know, a woman's place in the kitchen? That's sort of those sort of cliches. Have you ever actually done that? And the chances are most guys probably haven't done any of those sort of things. Another important point I'd like to quickly raise that Bettina Arndt mentioned is that women are also perpetrators of domestic violence. And until we begin to see this as an issue that affects everyone, not just men perpetrating it against women, we're not going to fully address it. I also heard on the radio this morning, I was listening to Triple J Breakfast, and they were chatting about uh, this apropos of it being White Ribbon Day. And they also mentioned that uh, domestic violence or intimate family violence is in the LBGTIQ plus community as well. Mm. And that is almost completely um, uh, happening uh, under the radar. That's never discussed. So that's another thing that we should always try and keep in mind. Absolutely. James, moving to you now. And you had a very interesting story this week detailing the University of Sydney's strengthened ties in China. In fact, they've opened yeah. up a shop front in China. They have. Um, mm. Tell us more about their, their plans. Well, they've opened up their first address within China, which is the, called, imaginatively, the Centre in China, where basically they, it's all about research and alumni links so they can link up with their alumni in China and, and collaborate in research, which is fair enough. The University of Sydney is not alone when it comes to Moving, um, looking towards China, UNSW has done it with their Torch Innovation Precinct, which was started up with $30, 30 million dollars of private Chinese money, and every most universities right now want a piece of China. They want the private, they want the private money that's associated with it. They want the research collaborations, and they want the international students, which their funds are cross subsidised to fund research. Is you sit alone in in moving into China? Are they the first to open up these sort of and shop fronts? In in, in uh, no, not, not that I know of in China, but um, I know that, um, say, I know Monash University has a Malaysia address. Uh, University of Wollongong has, a, I believe, a Qatar, I believe I could be wrong on that, Qatar and India address. And yet it's not unusual for universities to open up satellite campuses or satellite research centres. Um, it's all about inter international engagement for them. They, and so they can set up international links, get the international students, get the international money 
so that so their research is the best and they become the best university. As pointed out by Stephen Fitzgerald, who's Australia's first ambassador to China, while he was making this comment specifically towards of University of Technology Sydney's Australia-China Relations Institute, um, basically he cautioned that all universities should be careful when linking up with China accepting donations. I thought it very amusing that in your chat with uh, Michael Spence, the UCID VC, he said, we don't grandstand about China at the University of Sydney, and then immediately went on to grandstand, saying <laughs> the Chinese university sector is growing in its importance for global research. Mm. Australia would be crazy not to be partnering with that development. Yeah, and if you look at the, f- the first half of that sentence, the uh, first two paragraphs before that sentence from his statement, he grandstanded the University of Sydney's relationship with China a lot. But the thing is, he has a point in saying that China is our biggest, it's our biggest trading partner. We need to work with it. But I agree with Stephen Fitzgerald in to an extent, as in, they need to be careful with, like, accepting any donation or accepting any, um, uh, like, private industry relationship. It needs to be, they need to be careful with what they're doing. Lauren, what are your thoughts on Australian universities expect, exporting their, their wares to, to Southeast Asia? I was actually having a, com- well, I think it was a class discussion the other day about the effects of uh, donations in terms of their sort of subtle impacts on decisions made um, when using that money and that is even if there is no direct benefit given to the donee sorry forgot the word for that benefactor that's a better one um that there is this sort of um you know there is this implicit um favoritism to whatever extent that would occur as a result of receiving a gift from somebody so can you really separate uh, the two things? I don't know. Before, before people attack us on the, the Twitter and on the, on the comments section, beneficiary is the person who receives money, benefactor is the person who gives money. The, I find this quite a fascinating subject and I think we're going to see more and more of it where you'll have universities in Australia where they have a campus, their traditional home, but they're becoming more national and international where mm. you... You know, being a University of Sydney student doesn't mean going to their Camperdown campus. Being an ANU student doesn't mean being in Acton in Canberra. Uh, being uh, Monash doesn't mean you're in Melbourne. It just means that you, you get your degree from an institution that almost lives globally. Mm. And, and at the same time, you could be anywhere doing it. And I think that if, if the students and if the money are in China or in India, which are these two enormous burgeoning middle classes, then you've got to be there to take it off them. Yeah, it's... To an extent, but also it needs to be... They need to be cautious with when they're doing these dealings because we saw... I know, I know it's the political realm. We saw what happened to Sam Dastiari. I think what you've got to do is just be really transparent about what mm, you're doing and, and, and who's helping you do it. it, it Sam Dastiari didn't get in trouble because of what he did. He got in trouble because of the, the opaqueness with his attempt to try and hide it. Another point I think that might be important to note is... Could their brand be watered down by them growing so big and perhaps not having as much oversight over their satellite operations? I think that, that's a, that's a very good point you make. That if 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 what if a university traditional old what are called Sandstone University built up spent 150 years building up a reputation opens a shop front doesn't put enough due diligence in it and they find out it's beset by scandal that would have a huge deleterious effect. On their reputation, I think that's a very good point. Well, that happened in Monash the other day. Um, there is a bit of a public relations fail. They told students not to participate in any pro-democracy rallies in Malaysia because it's illegal. But then they clarified to say that they were just advising that it was illegal. Part three today, 
Torrens University has launched a graduate certificate in education specifically for teachers working with children on the autism spectrum. And I spoke with the Torrens Dean of Education, Mick Grimley, about this course, and he described the, the course objectives as applying a person-first perspective to analyze and solve the issues and challenges of ch teaching children with autism, to identify and critically analyze biases, prejudice, and assumptions associated with autism in society, and to analyze design and evaluate inclusive, ethical, and effective learning environments. My chat with uh, Mick Grimley was quite interesting, and he spoke uh, quite uh, in, in an in-depth way about how when, when you teach or educate children with autism, you have to take an, an, a person-first approach to it, which means stepping into the child with autism shoes and trying to imagine seeing the world from their perspective. And it's not, it's not a very easy thing to do because just like every person without autism sees the world differently, every person with autism sees the world differently as well. And you've got to try and understand what, what it is that is making an, a child with autism tick, essentially. And uh, I, the full chat is on the website. You can listen to it or read it. I just wanted to have a chat with you, Lauren, because at Early Learning Review, you do a lot of stories about children with autism. What sort of challenges do you think that educators come, uh, face in this realm? So one of the biggest challenges that I've come across in my research is communication. Yeah, that can be a big challenge. This is something that uh, Mick Grimley and I spoke about. It's when, when you face communication with a child with autism, it can be very frustrating because Every child with autism has different skill sets in communication, different levels of communication. Some you can converse with, uh, you know, using words and phrases as you would a child without autism. For others, uh, they may not have the vocal skills and it may be a case of a lot of pointing, a lot of uh, sign language. It might be the written word is the best way to communicate. And that can be very frustrating if, it's a, if it can be a slow process. And that's what can actually lead to some of the devastating outcomes that we saw. And uh, there was one story about a child with autism that ended up being placed in a cage in a school in the, in the ACT. And that sort of outcome is, is so obviously wrong. And that's one of the triggers that has led to Torrens creating this specific course to try and teach skills. And one of the fact, one of the part of the coursework is that adults who have, you know, have who have autism and have gone through childhood and their adolescence with autism actually come in and sort of share their experiences mm. about how they see the world and about how they best communicate and how their experience has sort of the their experience of the world can then be used and trans transmuted I guess to dealing mm. with children. I think that's a really important uh, part of this course. This is good because there's a lot of teachers, a lot of teaching workforce just isn't trained to, um, to uh, care for kids with mm. autism. That's not trained to. Well, one thing that one thing that uh, Mick Grimley found was that when children with autism are mainstreamed, that is placed through the traditional uh, schooling environment rather than being in special schools, if if they are struggling and communication is breaking down and teachers aren't best equipped, what happens is they just get left on the periphery of the class and they just go through and often teachers will just sort of pass them to just move them up so they don't have to deal with them in future. And what they end up doing is they end up finishing primary school and even high school without actually learning anything because they've just been shunted through rather than actually having teachers given the skills to teach them, to impart knowledge, to help them learn, to help them grow so that when they finish school, they actually can get jobs and be contributing members of society rather than ending up just on the fringes. 
Well, I hope that public schools will fund those teachers to do this course. Yeah. In that case. And if it's it's a Torrance course, and Torrance is based in South Australia, but it is available in module form online. So if you mm. check out Torrance University for any teachers out there who want to learn more about it, or uh, early learning uh, workers who work with children with autism, because it is it is uh, designed to for anyone any educator working with uh, children with autism at any level. Now, I also wanted to point out that uh, this week the General Sir John Monash scholarship winners were announced. And these grants are for the absolute high achievers at university level, uh, up to $200,000 to go towards uh, Australian university graduates to go overseas to the best universities in the world to complete you know, remarkable PhD and master's studies. And we've been running a profile series with the winners at campusreview.com.au. So if you go to campusreview.com.au, and search for John Monash or just go on the front page, you can read about some of these high achievers. They they really make us all feel very uh, insecure about everything we achieved. James, thanks very much for joining me. Uh, you're going to stay in Australia? You're not going to move to Canada through the Trump administration? No, no, no. I think we're safe in Australia for now. For now? For now. That's the key word. Lauren, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Patrick. It's been great. Thank you.